Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. Gestational diabetes is a condition that some pregnant women may experience, but what does it really mean? What causes it? How does it differ from other types of diabetes? I've enlisted the help of one of my favorite expert guests to explain the symptoms, diagnosis, treatment, and management of gestational diabetes, and to discuss short and long-term effects during and after pregnancy. My guest is a highly sought-after Los Angeles-based expert practicing obstetrics, gynecology, maternal fetal medicine, and specializing in high-risk pregnancy. He's a leader in his field with extensive training and experience, accolades, and a passion for both medical research and teaching. Dr. Stephen Rad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Berlin. It's an honor and privilege to be back on your podcast and today to discuss the gestational diabetes with our listeners. Yeah, I say welcome back because we did an episode on IUGR. And I had no idea that so many people are affected by IOGR. We got lots of feedback about it, and they found your words very helpful and oftentimes very comforting. So thank you for that. Thank you. Likewise, I also heard great feedback. Okay, so we're going to talk about gestational diabetes. But before we really get into gestational diabetes, let's discuss diabetes in general. Diabetes is a condition where the body has trouble regulating blood sugar. And outside of pregnancy, there are two different types, right? There's type 1 diabetes and type 2. Right. And so with type 1 diabetes, the body, the pancreas, stops making the hormone insulin. And after you eat food, your body breaks it down and your blood sugar, your glucose level, which is the blood sugar, goes up, normal. And then over time comes back down. The hormone that brings it down is insulin. And if you stop making insulin, there's nothing left to bring it down. So your blood sugar gets higher and higher until it's dangerously high. So those type of diabetics need to inject themselves with insulin. Type 2 diabetes is a little bit different. It's uh, where you're still having insulin issues, but you're making insulin. It's just that the cells stop responding to the insulin that you're making. So your blood sugar goes up, your body releases insulin like it should, but the cells no longer want all that extra sugar. So your blood sugar levels stay high and it's treated entirely differently. What is gestational diabetes? Okay, that was a perfect explanation of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Gestational diabetes refers to diabetes or an abnormal glucose tolerance test, which we'll discuss a little bit, that's first recognized and diagnosed, typically in the second or third trimester of pregnancy and that was not clearly present prior to pregnancy. So the diabetes of pregnancy it affects approximately 6 to 10% of the U.S. population, and the global prevalence, depending on different countries, can be as high as 10 to 25%. Question, are there any kind of symptoms that you would feel, or is it something that is just always tested for? So typically, there are no symptoms. We do universal screening of gestational diabetes in the second trimester between 24 and 28 weeks. Probably we'll end up discussing also patients who are high risk for developing gestational diabetes, who sometimes we screen in the first trimester. But typically the patients who test positive for gestational diabetes in the first trimester have a lot of risk factors and they may have had undiagnosed pre-existing diabetes 
that we caught in the first trimester. So in a nutshell, there are generally no symptoms because in the U.S. especially, 90% of pregnant women have risk factors for gestational diabetes. We do universal screening on all women. How is the screening done? I know you said it's generally done in the second trimester or just the end of the second trimester. What do you do? So in general, there's no universally accepted standard regarding screening for gestational diabetes. Practitioners generally use their local practice. But in the United States, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology recommends universal screening. And 90% of pregnant women in the U.S. have at least one risk factor for glucose impairment in pregnancy. So no one here is alone. Um, the most common screening approach in the United States is a two-step approach. And that's, again, done between 24 and 28 weeks, since that's when insulin resistance increases. And as you were talking about earlier, gestational diabetes is a diabetes that results from the placenta making hormones that cause or block the insulin and cause insulin resistance. And as a result, your blood sugar goes high. So the most common screen is a two-step approach. The first step is a one-hour 50-gram oral glucose tolerance test. So you take a drink that has a very high sugar load, 50 grams, and a lot of patients complain about it as being disgusting. Or So I've tried it myself. It's not that bad. There are different Wait, flavors. which flavor did you have? Yeah, there's I had the orange one. <laughs> oh, note to self, if I try it, I'm going for the orange. But there's also like a lemon and a, is there a red one? There's, I've seen a lemon one and I've seen a clear one. We have the orange ones. You can put it in the fridge. You're not supposed to freeze it or use ice, though. And um, it's not that bad. It's like an orange wine was like orange soda, but it's like a syrup, orange syrup, I would say, actually. It's so sweet. But there's no bubbly like an orange soda, unfortunately. <laughs> you have about five minutes to drink it. And most people can drink it faster. You just want it over with. But it's not that bad, honestly. You said it's um, 50 grams of glucose? Yeah, it's 50 grams of glucose. And we'll check your sugar exactly an hour after and technically for this stuff you don't need to be fasting but most women are and if you screen positive which is your blood glucose is over 135 to 140 depending on what your provider uses a cutoff then you move on to the second step so that's why it's called a two-step approach and the second step you take a fasting 100 gram oral glucose tolerance test which is diagnostic so the first step is just screening if you fail the first step or if you test positive, it does not mean that you have gestational diabetes. It means that you go on to the second step. So a lot of women panic, but most of them end up passing the second step. So the second step is an even more high sugar drink. It's a hundred gram load. I haven't tried that one yet, but now after this podcast, I might. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I do hear a lot of complaints about it. This one, I can probably imagine it is worse than the first one. And so you check your sugar fasting before you take the drink and then check your sugars exactly one hour, two hour, and three hours after the drink was consumed. So there's a total of four blood glucose levels, and that's called the three-hour glucose tolerance test. And we have cutoffs, according to the American College of OBGYN or ACOG, for the fasting, which should be below 95. The first hour, we want it to be below 180. The second, 155. And the third hour, below 140. If you have two or more abnormal values, and that's considered diagnostic for gestational diabetes. So that's a two-step approach. There is a one-step approach, which you can do an in-between drink. That's a 75-gram oral glucose tolerance test. For that one, though, you just have to have one positive test and you test positive. So providers in areas that use a two-hour test tend to have higher gestational diabetes rates. So a lot of us prefer still doing a two-step approach, though there is no optimal testing, and both are widely used and acceptable. Lastly, if a patient is unable to tolerate the drink or they absolutely refuse to take it, you can get your blood glucose checked four times a day for one to two weeks and see if you have elevated blood glucose. So we treat you as if you have gestational diabetes for a couple of weeks, and we gather data. There are some candies or meals or other drinks that have the same amount glucose load, and if your provider is okay with you taking that, you can, though none of them have been validated or endorsed by our associations. Yeah, so and a few then, things there, uh, just before we move forward, I do know uh, several of our patients, they were not able to keep the 100 grams down. So um, I think the combination of just slamming the body with that much pure glucose and then all those blood tests just make them queasy and they throw up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would too, for sure. So 
a question I get a lot is why, like, that's not nature. Because you just talked about testing your blood glucose four times a day for a week or so, just seeing how your body reacts to the normal foods that you eat. Why do we use a test that shocks the body? Nobody really eats that way. Yeah, these have been validated and studied. And so we have to have some kind of, you know, standard approach. And personally, I'd rather take the drink and get it over with than checking my sugars four times a day for a couple of weeks. Do you ever use continuous glucose monitor? Usually the, the continuous glucose monitor is a monitor that you, instead of pricking yourself, you can basically wear a little patch and it continuously monitors your blood glucose, usually connected to your phone through the device. Those generally have to be prescribed and are generally used for pre-existing diabetics, but it is something we haven't considered, but I personally use it, but you know, actually it may be not a bad idea. Well, thanks. You avoid having to check your sugars. And once you get diagnosed with gestational diabetes, you have to check your sugar four times a day. And maybe doing the continuous monitor is an excellent way to not have to keep pricking yourself. Yeah, and also because it communicates with your phone, you get alarms. Like you can set it if it goes above a certain amount or below a certain amount, your phone will kind of go off and it checks like every five minutes. So there are different kinds. Yeah, I, was, I love it. I'm going to look into that. Yeah. I think about it for two different ways. One is for the diagnostic instead of slamming your body with all that sugar and drawing blood four times. But then also, like you said, if somebody's diagnosed, then for the rest of the pregnancy, not having to keep pricking, you just wear this patch for 10 days at a time, typically, and you don't really feel it go in. It's going all the way into your blood vessels. It's just going right underneath the surface of the skin. Do you have some patients that you notice they're doing that? Yeah, so I have patients, I think they were participating in a trial for one of the companies. I don't know which one. I have a family member that uses Dexcom, but that's not the one that they were doing the trial on for gestational diabetes. And then I just have more nature-minded people, like a naturopath who came in and she just didn't want to do that test. So they told her she can prick her fingers four times a day for a bunch of days. And she's like, I'll just do this. <laughs> and Oh, wow, I love it. You might have revolutionized our practice here. So I'm going to speak with our diabetes and pregnancy program at Cedars-Sinai and see if we can switch over to that because my patients will absolutely love it. Cool. And the last thing about it is they can share it with you so you can always log in and see what their sugars have been. Right, right. Okay. Right. So I wanted to add a couple caveats. Fire away. For the screening. For patients who have had a history of bariatric surgery, usually they're not able to tolerate the drink as part of their stomach or intestines have been removed. And so they're not recommended to take that load of sugar. And patients with multiple risk factors for gestational diabetes, for example, if they're obese, polycystic ovarian syndrome, have a family history and are older, then we typically screen them earlier in the first trimester as well. So they get an early gestational diabetes screen in addition to followed later in the second trimester again if they pass the first one. And we check also baseline at the beginning of hemoglobin A1C level to see how their control was pre-pregnancy. And again, a lot of the women who are diagnosed in the first trimester may have had diabetes pre-pregnancy and didn't know about it. Okay. Right before we go to break, you mentioned something earlier, which is that some people use a set meal that has a certain amount of grams of glucose that you eat over a short period of time or jelly beans or candy. None of that has really been studied the way the glucola has been right. studied. But I recently saw someone, and it's probably not been studied either the same way, but it's a drink also, but it's an all-natural drink. It's not like so artificial, the artificial sure, sure, colors sure. and stuff like that. And I don't know. Hopefully that'll start to uh, become more widely available for people who are looking for the natural route. Sure, sure. I think if we are able to just confirm the load and talk to the people making it, it may be possible to consider using those alternative drinks. I will connect you. All right, let's take a break. We're learning a lot, and there's a lot more to learn. We'll be right back with Dr. Stephen Wren. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. 
This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking about gestational diabetes with Dr. Stephen Rad. Doc, before we go into the risk factors that you talked about, we were talking about diagnosis and you mentioned the A1C hemoglobin test. How is that done and what does it tell us? So hemoglobin A1C test is just a blood test. Basically, it measures the amount of blood sugar glucose that's attached to hemoglobin. And hemoglobin is a part of your red blood cells that carries oxygen from your lungs to the rest of the body. And a hemoglobin A1C test shows us the average amount of glucose attached to hemoglobin over the past three months. So basically, it's a three-month average because that's how long the red blood cells lives of what your blood sugar is. And so it gives us a window into how your blood sugars have been controlled or your blood sugar levels in the past three months. And you can't lie. So um, <laughs> there's different cutoffs that tell us if you, for example, have a normal level or prediabetes or diabetes. And that tells us if you're diagnosed with diabetes or if you are at risk for getting gestational diabetes or diabetes later. So gestational occurs just during pregnancy. So the A1C wouldn't tell you that much, right? Or Exactly. It tells us about women who we do it in the, typically in the first trimester as a baseline. I actually check it on all my patients. Some providers may only check it in those patients who have risk factors for diabetes. I check it in everyone. You never know. And so it really tells us if someone has pre-existing diabetes or a pre-existing pre-diabetes. And if they have a pre-existing diabetes and they get treated starting out in the first trimester, if so that's not gestational diabetes, they had diabetes from before that they didn't know. If they have pre-diabetes, they're at risk for getting gestational diabetes during the pregnancy. They may want to start some of the diet modifications and lifestyle changes early on to help reduce the risk of getting gestational diabetes. So at what point do you test the A1C? Is it with the glucose tolerance test or earlier? I do the first, or whenever you do their first set of labs, and their baseline labs that we do in pregnancy, I add a hemoglobin A1C in there. Oh, in the first trimester? Mm-hmm, yeah. So that way you have early warning. You ever accidentally exactly. figure out that somebody has diabetes? Yes, absolutely. I mean, especially in LA, we have a lot of patients who are older now, and... One of the risk factors is being over age 40. And a lot of Americans, as we know, are overweight or obese. And I don't know so, what you're talking about. <laughs> so basically, you know, 90% of women have at least one risk factor for getting gestational diabetes. Okay, let's talk um, about those risk factors. You, you mentioned being over 40 as a risk factor. Uh, what else? Yeah. So we talked about um, the elevated hemoglobin A1C or history of prediabetes having gestational diabetes in a previous pregnancy. Um, you may not know this, that there's a 40% risk of recurrence with having gestational diabetes in a previous pregnancy. It's very high. Interesting. A family history of diabetes, especially in a first degree, immediate family member, obesity, recent like excessive weight gain before you became pregnant or between pregnancies, or excessive weight gain during the pregnancy, older age, especially if you're over 40, and if you have a medical condition, specifically like a polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, you're at risk of getting prediabetes and gestational diabetes. If you had a previous child that weighed over nine pounds, that increases your risk for gestational diabetes. And certain ethnicities such as Hispanic, Native American, African American, and East Asian patients have a higher risk of getting gestational diabetes. So certain ethnicities have a lot of gestational diabetes. So what are not risk factors? If you're young, younger than 25, if you're white, you're not overweight, and you have no family history of diabetes, your risk is only about 10%. You know, that only constitutes about 10% of the population. The rest of us are at risk. 
<laughs> that's why we screen everyone we do universal screening i like you so the rest of us you include yourself in that group of <laughs> at risk for gestational diabetes uh, <laughs> wonderful i once in a while enough times that i noticed a trend that confused me with all the risk factors that you mentioned not being there except potentially age so women who don't have diabetes in the family women who are not overweight but in fact sometimes i would say low body fat and are white and they're not carrying very large babies but they still show a high glucose level in their fasting sugar and sometimes you know depending on how aggressively it's treated they'll end up on insulin have you seen that at all or am i just dreaming no, absolutely. And so these are just risk factors, but the point is that that's why we do universal screening because you may be surprised anyone's at risk. And so the question is, you know, you know, we talked about like what diabetes and gestational diabetes was, but we really didn't talk too much more about like the path, the physiology of it. So pregnancy is a state of insulin resistance and it's really mediated by the placenta secreting certain hormones that causes insulin resistance. And these include such as growth hormone, corticotropin-releasing hormone. Another very common one is placental lactogen. And these hormones essentially block the function of insulin, which leads to elevated blood glucose and, as a result, gestational diabetes. And gestational diabetes develops in women whose pancreas can't overcome the insulin resistance that's created by these placental hormones. And as a result, you need insulin in order to get your blood glucose and your blood sugar into the cells for use. And so if your insulin is being, its function is being blocked, then you will have gestational diabetes and that can happen to anyone. So we can blame the placenta and those women. Hmm. Are they supposed to cause insulin resistance? Is there a physiological benefit to that during pregnancy? Yeah, I mean, basically the thought is that it helps the sugar to get to the baby and help the baby's nutrition and growth. Okay, so just when it gets overly zealous and blocks too much of the sugar from being taken out of the blood. Yes. Okay. Exactly. In my little trend of women with no risk factors, very tiny, low body fat women, I had a theory. It could be way off. It's just a theory that popped into my head that because they don't have a lot of body fat, when they go that long period of time, 10, 12 hours without eating from when they finish eating at nighttime till they eat in the morning, that their body like breaks down glycogen to feed the baby. And that's why their fasting blood sugar is high. Yeah. And there is actually one of the hardest sugars to control is the fasting one in all women, not just the ones that you're describing. And there is a paradoxical effect in the middle of the night, basically, that's thought to happen where you get a spike in your sugar. And, you know, in pregnancy, you need a lot of energy. Your body requires higher energy. And so your theory is probably correct. Oh, wow. I'm going to look deeper into it. It's actually, the what made me think that is that when I see it treated kind of aggressively with insulin, the more insulin you give them, it controls the issue for a little while, and then boom, and the fasting is higher again. Almost like the body saying, no, we need this sugar in here to feed the baby. Yes, absolutely. That's what we see all the time. Okay, so what would happen if you just left the blood sugar high and didn't treat gestational diabetes? So untreated gestational diabetes or having elevated blood sugars is associated with increased risk of adverse outcomes in pregnancy. For the mother, this is especially important because it can lead to hypertensive disorders such as preeclampsia or gestational hypertension, which can hurt the mother or lead to an early delivery. For the fetus, it can cause the fetus to grow very large or be large for gestational age or, or macrosomic, which is especially large baby. Is that um, because they're because, essentially eating candy all the time? <laughs> yeah, mm. yeah. So, so mom's blood sugar is high. It goes directly in the baby's circulation. The baby's blood sugar is high, and so they'll end up being big. They also tend to have excessive amniotic fluid, which is called polyhydramnios, which is thought because their blood sugar is high, and so they pee more. Right. Um, larger babies have a risk for what's called shoulder dystocia, where the shoulder gets stuck, and as a result, they can get birth trauma and injury to the nerves that uh, particularly go in the neck and the arms. You can have, God forbid, if a baby gets stuck, a neurologic injury or stillbirth. There's a larger babies have a higher need to get an operative delivery, so that's forceps or vacuum deliveries, and C-sections. In terms of the fetus or neonate, can affect the baby's heart. 
and it's caused something called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy where the muscles in the heart get thickened. And very important for the newborn, they can have gestational diabetes associated with and pre-existing diabetes associated with respiratory problems. So some of them end up in the NICU. And there can also be metabolic complications. So if the baby's blood sugars are high, it can lead to abnormal calcium levels, elevated bilirubin, and they can have polycythemia or excess blood in their circulation. And sometimes the baby's insulin production is ramped up because its sugar is high. And as a result, when they're born, their sugars drop right away and they become hypoglycemic in the labor room. And so these risks are worse. So the more uncontrolled diabetes and higher blood sugars you have, especially that fasting sugar that you were talking about. So unfortunately, it's the hardest sugar to control. But these risks and complications of gestational diabetes are worse, especially when the fasting glucoses are high. And lastly, there are some concerns about long-term risks, both to the moms. The mom has a higher risk of heart disease and diabetes in the future. And there may be in the offspring an increased risk of obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, and metabolic syndrome. Wow. Okay. So, well, I mean, the take-home line is you don't want to leave it untreated, but you did spark a few questions in my mind. One of them is just a curiosity. Do you ever treat oligohydramnios, right, low amniotic fluid, in non-diabetic <laughs> people by having them eat more sugar? No, I've never done that, but that's a thought. It's a possibility, you know, because, I mean, <laughs> physiologically, the baby will pee more. <laughs> okay, that's one thought. The other thought is, I mean, you do the test between 24 and 28 weeks. Could somebody not have any issue then, but then have an issue at 32 weeks? Yes, absolutely. So typically, the second trimester at 24, 28 weeks is when we screen, like we discussed, or in the early first trimester, those who later are found to have a big baby, for example, at 32, 34, 36 weeks, sometimes we suspect that their insulin resistance may have happened after they got their diabetes test, especially if they got their diabetes test on the earlier end of the spectrum. And so we sometimes do a, another glucose tolerance test later in the pregnancy if we want to rule out diabetes again. Okay. That is a lot of information. We've talked about what diabetes is. We've talked about different types of non-gestational diabetes, like type 1, type 2. We've talked about the physiology that's quite different in gestational diabetes and the hormones of the placenta that cause it. And we've talked about risk factors, and we've talked about what happens if you leave it untreated. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about management and treatment. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally, omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new omega-3 soft gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We are talking to Dr. Stephen Rad about gestational diabetes. Okay, doc, you've made your point. You don't want to leave your blood sugar floating high. <laughs> Although one thing that popped in my head is you talked about babies becoming hypoglycemic, where the O, hypo, usually means low and hyper means high, too low and too high. So hypoglycemic is where all of a sudden the blood sugar drops, which is almost more of an urgent medical emergency. Exactly. Because the higher blood sugar causes problems over time, but your brain needs glucose to function. And without it, things go downhill very quickly. Exactly. So one of the most important times of controlling sugars is in the last few weeks of the pregnancy, especially while you're in labor or before you go in for a C-section. We really want the mom's blood sugars to be controlled because that's what the baby's you know, blood sugar is seeing and what the baby's blood sugar likely is. And if it's high, then there are risks for that hypoglycemia, which both newborns and adults could be life-threatening and it's worse than like you said having high blood sugar and 
you know, for an adult who's, for example, taking insulin, they get too low of a blood sugar, you just give them some milk or orange juice or some candy, but you can't really do that with a newborn. So it becomes very dangerous and critical. Is that risk because now that there's no longer inhibition from the placental hormones, the baby's own pancreas just says, whoa, that's a lot of blood sugar and overattacks it? So if like right before delivery, your mom's sugar is high, the baby's sugar is high, then it's the baby's pancreas is making insulin to control its own blood sugar. And once it's out of the mom, it's now lost its source of sugar, but it has all this insulin around and its blood sugar will tink. Um, that makes sense. Okay, so management and treatment. When somebody's diagnosed with gestational diabetes, how do we go about keeping it under control? Okay, so this is a great question. And so how do we monitor? What do we do? So patients, uh, once they're diagnosed with gestational diabetes, first they panic, and then they come to meet with us and we tell them not to panic, that it's totally doable and manageable and we'll take good care of them. So we meet with them. We review gestational diabetes with them, all the stuff so far that we discussed. And then we also, and we talk to them about monitoring their blood sugars, which I'll get into in a second. And then we also will oftentimes refer them to what's called a CDE or certified diabetes educator or a nutritionist that's experienced in gestational diabetes that co-follows or manages the patient along with their OB or high-risk OB maternal fetal medicine specialist. They will, at this consultation, also get a prescription for supplies. So they need a glucose meter and then lancets and test strips. You have to get the prescription for the device, what you little, the lancets that you poke yourself with and the test strips, and we teach you how to use it. But you did bring up a point earlier about continuous glucose monitors, which I'm going to look into. And then the blood glucose levels are monitored typically four times a day. And we recommend fasting when you wake up and then one or two hours after the beginning of each meal. And that's really important. It's the beginning of the meal, not when you finish eating. And it's preferred one hour because we have stricter control and better outcomes of the one hour with post-meal check. So you'll do that four times a day after fasting, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then I have everyone keep a glucose log of their values in a specific chart that I give them. And it can be done online or also most of the newer glucose meters now have an app that track it for you and your doctor, provider or nutritionist or CDE can look at it online and follow along with you. Though I still personally like the traditional handwritten one and I make my poor patients write it down (laughs) because by writing it down, they're seeing trends and then you can see on the chart, you know, over a week's period, which numbers are high and you can get that visual is very important. When you use the phone app, it gives you some graphs, and I don't think it's as helpful. And then I also have everyone keep a food diary or food log of everything they eat and drink so that we can correlate it with their blood glucose levels. And we find out what's causing their blood glucose to go up or to be well-controlled. And one of the biggest culprits is bread, rice, and potatoes and pasta, even more than sweets. Bread, rice are the worst, unfortunately, which are kind of the most common things people like to eat. Are you talking about um, all bread or just uh, like white flour? What about the yeah, mostly grains? like the, yeah, but all bread. Honestly, it's all bread, but of course, those are other ones are worse. So I actually in the office give you the glucose chart and I give you a food diary and you write down everything you eat. Again, I find that better than them typing it on their iPhone or notes or whatever on an Excel sheet because the act of writing it makes them be more active participants. And our target ranges when you wake up fasting, both of those are typically depending on your provider, will be a fasting glucose less than 90 or 95. Most use 95 as a cutoff. If you do one-hour checks, it should be less than 140, and a two-hour check should be less than 120. And then we meet weekly to review your blood glucoses, and meetings may be more frequent or less frequent depending on your initial control. Depending on the way your office provider is set up, you can do it in person or by telemedicine as well which has become common in the COVID The age of COVID. The age of COVID. So that's how we do monitoring for gestational diabetes. I mean, it sounds to me like the monitoring together with the food log tells you which things your body's tolerating well and which things they aren't. Yes. And then you can use that to kind of change the diet to keep your blood sugar in a zone. If that doesn't work, if that's not enough, what's the next step? 
Yeah, so personally, let the patients go the first week just writing down what they eat and checking their sugars, and then we troubleshoot from there to control their diet. You can also give upfront counseling. So the first approach is diet modification, we call medical nutrition therapy. And you divide your calories into three meals and three to four snacks during the day. It's 40% carbs, 20% protein, and 40% fat is a general teaching. But again, what I do is have them do the food log and then we tweak their food, you know, their meals based on what we see at Spike. But the take-home message from here is that we strongly urge patients never to skip meals. And they have to have three meals and three snacks or four snacks. So you're always eating something every three to four hours. And by having something every three to four hours, you're not having these wild ups and downs in your blood sugars. You're keeping your blood sugar steady. And that's also key to dieting outside of pregnancy to losing weight. We also recommend exercise, which can be walking 30 minutes a day or 50 minutes after each meal, more if you can. And then if diet fails, you have usually typically a couple weeks to work on it. If that does not work, then you have to have a treatment with uh, medication. Nowadays, insulin is recommended as the first line treatment. It's safe. It doesn't cross the placenta, so it doesn't get to the baby. And it's easy to titrate between your insulin until we achieve the correct control. There's different ways to start insulin. You can just usually take it at night or in the day. And some other providers may do it based on your weight and have you take insulin several times a day. There are oral medications such as metformin or glyburide, which have been used for years in treating diabetes. The issue with those are they cross the placenta, and so we don't know if they have long-term effects on the fetus anymore, we're not sure, and it's controversial how well they end up controlling your gestational diabetes, and it's harder to change the dose, so you're very limited in how much of the dose you can increase and how often, so we typically recommend insulin in all of our patients now, and occasionally we'll have a patient that does not want to use insulin no matter what, or they can't be compliant with following the rules for insulin, which can be dangerous you don't do it correctly. And so in those patients, we will use the oral medication. Is insulin pump an option? We use an insulin pump in the type 1 diabetics who don't have any insulin at all. They're typically treated with insulin. Not always. If they had a, especially had a pump before pregnancy, those are typically they're continued during the pregnancy. In a gestational diabetic, your insulin needs may not be as high and then you run the risk of having you know like hypoglycemia which can be dangerous so we don't typically treat it with a pump right i guess we're not quite there where the not uh, there yet <laughs> where the cgm talks to the pump yeah. the continuous glucose monitor talks to the pump <laughs> and acts like uh you know artificial pancreas okay, we're getting close, start with the, yeah we're getting close we're going to start with that monitor first <laughs> yeah yeah step one and then you know if somebody's got gestational diabetes from the initial test, is there a spectrum of severity? Yeah. So actually, we talk about a two-step approach. If you take the first 50-gram load, drink in the two-step approach, the cutoff for that is 135 to 140. But if you are over 200 on your one-hour one, then that is, for some providers, including myself, considered diagnostic for gestational diabetes after just the 50-gram load. And then if during your second step, you have very high sugars, also like over 200, then you're probably going to end up needing insulin and that, you know, confers a higher risk. But I have to say one thing, talking about this diet, you will be surprised. You'll have a patient who has all these like crazy sugars over, you know, they're checking their sugars, their sugars are over like 200 and you look at their food log and they're having rice or bread and pasta or potatoes. And you would be surprised how many patients you can control their sugar by just changing their diet. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating. The food log is just really fascinating how you see a little small amount of bread or small amount of rice can really take your sugars for a loop. And you'll be surprised how many of them you can actually avoid using insulin. And I mean, I've had patients where I've been ready to use insulin. Their sugars are in the 200s. They're, you know, 45 years old and obese. And I'm like, okay, they have to get insulin. And then we'll look at their food log and they'll change and they'll come back with sugars in the 80s. And it's wow. incredible. I so, imagine even more so if they switch from sedentary to active lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. You'd be surprised that you can try to avoid treatment by diet and exercise alone. So if you do these things before pregnancy, you uh, can lower yeah. your risk. Exactly. So if you're thinking about getting pregnant and you have risk factors, 
or don't have risk factors, it doesn't matter. The best thing to do is to start being healthy beforehand or weight loss, diet and exercise, so that once you become pregnant, it's like second nature, you've already reduced your risk of getting gestational diabetes and just having a healthier pregnancy overall. Yeah, so I mean, honestly, if you're listening to this podcast and you know somebody who's very early in a pregnancy or thinking about pregnancy, share this information. Now, the earlier that somebody gets it, the better off they are. And, you know, gestational diabetes, thankfully, we have ways to keep it under control, but it would be much better to not have it in the first place. Doc, I have a couple more questions for you. So I noticed that with gestational diabetics, a lot of the obstetricians like to deliver early. Yeah, so, you know, the question, basically, how does gestational diabetes affect labor and delivery management? Exactly what you said. One of the key issues in the management of diabetes is whether to induce labor and if so, when. So the goal of gestational diabetes is to have excellent control of your blood sugars. And when it comes to labor and delivery, we want to avoid stillbirth, too large of a baby. And the risk of having a too large of a baby or macrosomia are large for gestational age, which include the shoulder dystocia and the baby getting stuck and birth injuries, neurologic injuries, or needing to have a C-section. So that's where the optimal timing of delivery is questioned and whether or not delivering early can reduce some of those risks. So typically for the diet-controlled diabetics, typically labor does not have to be induced, though some providers may recommend induction of labor between 39 and 41 weeks. But typically those that are diet controlled, I mean, they have a higher risk of the complications, but not as much. For patients who are medication controlled or what we call GDMA2, by the way, we didn't really talk about the different nomenclature, but A1 is a diet controlled, A2 is medication controlled. Typically we're recommending induction of labor at 39 weeks. Early delivery for gestational diabetes at 37 to 38 weeks is only recommended if the diabetes is really poorly controlled or the patient's not being compliant with their treatment or if they have a concurrent medical condition like high blood pressure. We talked about respiratory. Some of these babies with diabetes have a higher risk of respiratory difficulty at birth. And so earlier delivery and early term deliveries also have an increased risk of respiratory complications. So we really want to avoid earlier than 39 weeks unless it's really necessary. But sometimes it's necessary to reduce the risk of stillbirth. And lastly, if you're being induced during labor, we'll monitor your blood sugars. And if they're high, sometimes you'll need an insulin infusion IV to control your blood sugars because we want your blood sugar to be perfect just before the baby is born for the reasons we talked about, like hypoglycemia. And if, lastly, if your estimated fetal weight on an ultrasound shows that the estimated fetal weight birth weight is over 4,500 grams, which is about nine and a half pounds, then you are offered or recommended to have an outright scheduled cesarean delivery to avoid birth trauma. You can decline, but it is offered to you, and that's according to the American College of OBGYN, not just because your OBGYN is scared. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we're all scared, you know, from liability. You know, I don't blame anyone for practicing defensive medicine, but my question on that one is, can't the estimated fetal weight be off? Yes. Unfortunately. <laughs> so um, if the labor, I mean, couldn't someone just try labor and if things aren't progressing smoothly, then switch over to Yeah, cesarean? I mean, you know, we had a podcast earlier about IUGR and we talked a little bit about the air and ultrasound. And with small babies, the estimated fetal weight tends to be pretty close. With the large babies, unfortunately, you can be off by a lot and they come out smaller than you predict and they think you're not a great doctor, but it's the truth. So I always warn the patient that we're measuring your baby to be large. In truth, that ultrasound is not perfect, especially when we get to the larger weight, so it may come out smaller. I mean, it just depends on, you know, if you're on the border versus you have a very large baby or clinically, you know, depending on the risk factors and the maternal size, et cetera. But Definitely, you know, the error in ultrasound needs to be taken into account. But there are strict criteria according to ACOG. And if the estimated fetal weight, even though it can be off, is above this weight, you have to recommend a C-section to the patient with the caveat telling them that honestly, it may come out a little bit smaller. We may be wrong, but we're trying to be safe. You just have to offer it. You don't have to force it. Yeah, we never force it. Yeah. Right. And the other thing is, I don't think it makes you a bad doctor. The idea is that you're looking for a potential problem. So when you have a reading with a margin of error, you're like, it could be as high as this, yeah. which could be a problem. We know it could be lower than that as yeah. well and may not be a problem at all. 
And likewise, it could come out bigger than you say. So there's a margin of error in both directions. Right. So I just practically, anecdotally, I see the measurement be off more in the overestimation of larger babies than yeah. the underestimation of smaller babies at the big end of the spectrum because mm-hmm. nobody's really that concerned if the baby's eight pounds. Right, right. So we're just looking for a potential problem. And, you know, that's why a lot of people are told, hey, your baby might be as big as nine and a half pounds and it comes out eight pounds. And they're like, but you said it was nine and a half pounds, but we don't know. It's just an estimate. estimate. Okay. I have one question personal. And again, I don't know if this is a trend or not, but my wife had gestational diabetes with two babies and not the other two. Interestingly enough, she had it with the first two and not the second two. Oh, well. And then also when she was treated with insulin for the first, maybe like two days before she spontaneously went to labor, she gave herself insulin and then just about passed out. And what happened was her blood sugar normalized itself out. Is that something that happens or is that just us? Yes. So that's important because what we think is sometimes when we see a patient, it's actually concerning when you see that because sometimes you'll have a patient who has needed insulin during this like whole third trimester we're getting towards the end and suddenly their blood sugars are very well controlled and their insulin needs to go down or in your case your wife almost passed out or did pass out and so the thought behind that is that the placenta is starting to dysfunction towards the end as you know as the pregnancy progresses the placenta gets old so may not be making those hormones as well and we start to get worried about placenta dysfunction in those patients who suddenly need less insulin or suddenly their sugars are amazing on the insulin they've been and we've had to lower the dose or be more careful so that's probably what was happening is that the placenta wasn't functioning as well which has its own concerns in terms of the baby getting nutrients and oxygen and growing so as an optimist i hypothesized the other way. I mean, she doesn't have any of the risk factors except potentially age, although she was pretty young at that time. And she was very thin, not a lot of body fat. And she had that fasting sugar that was really hard to manage. Every time they gave her more insulin, you know, a week later it would go up higher. So according to my original theory that her body's breaking down, you know, sugar at nighttime when she's essentially fasting to feed the baby, Then as she's getting very close to delivery, the body being very smart says, you know what? We need a perfect blood sugar at birth. So we're going to stop doing that. Yes, that's possible. Or it could just be her placenta was pooping out. Absolutely. I just like to be the optimist and I have no (laughs) idea. This is, you're the researcher. You're, you're but on a serious note, we don't really know, but it is curious that that might be the problem. And so when we see it, you know, we always think of the worst. Uh, Again, that's that's your job is to prevent yeah, we always think bad things from happening. So you always have to think that way. But, uh, you know, I'm just a chiropractor. I have no liability at all in this matter. So I like to think positive. Yes. <laughs> um, Doc, are there any uh, final thoughts on gestational yeah, diabetes? One last thing. Um, what to do after you deliver is very important. So most patients with gestational diabetes, after they deliver, their sugars go back to normal immediately, even in our pre-diabetics who have been on a bunch of insulin during the pregnancy, suddenly they need half or less amount of insulin, even though they're type 1 or type 2 diabetics. So mm. once you deliver, the placenta is out, your gestational diabetes goes away. You don't necessarily have to monitor your sugars. Some providers will continue to monitor for a day or two after you deliver, and they'll see that your sugars are back to normal. Um, though you are at high risk for getting gestational diabetes in a future pregnancy or getting diabetes in the future, in the next five to 10 years. So a common approach and what's recommended by the American College of OBGYN is to get a glucose tolerance test four to six weeks after you deliver. And in this case, we use the one-step approach, which is that 75 gram glucose Mm. in between tests. And you should get that done. If you had gestational diabetes, you should have that done four to six weeks after you deliver with your OB to make sure that your diabetes is gone and then continue to check at least yearly for diabetes because you are at risk of getting diabetes in the next five to 10 years. That's really interesting. Yeah, we recommend continuing diet and being very careful for the future. So it's something to tell your wife too. Yeah, I mean, now he's uh, 17 years old and thankfully her blood sugar is great. But what's sort of interesting is flashbacks in my mind to the episode we have on hyperemesis, which is very excessive nausea and vomiting throughout the pregnancy. And the people who we had on who had the worst, worst cases just couldn't eat, were throwing up all the time, dehydrated 60 or 70 IV fluid bags during a pregnancy. 
the second the placenta comes out, they all say the same thing. Instantly, it's gone. Yes. It's kind of amazing. So it sounds similar to the gestational diabetes, which makes sense. It's the hormones of the placenta that are causing it. Once you take them away, the problem goes away, hopefully. Yes, exactly. Doctor, thank you so much for sharing, again, really thorough, detailed information. Your expertise is exceptionally helpful to our listeners for understanding these things that come up for many, many people during pregnancy. Where can we find you online? So first of all, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed today's discussion, and I think it will be very, very helpful for a lot of women and families, either who are pregnant, thinking about getting pregnant, newly pregnant, etc. And if you have any questions, feel free to get in touch with me. We have our website, drsteverad.com. You can also see us on Instagram at drsteverad, or you can give us a call anytime. Thank you again. And at home, thanks for listening to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. If you want to connect with us, one of the best places is on Instagram at Dr. Berlin, D-O-C-T-O-R-B-E-R-L-I-N. People are always really surprised when they send me an instant message and I get back to them pretty much in a couple of hours. I try to answer every single one and the feedback is really helpful in terms of shaping future episodes. So if you want to weigh in, find us on Instagram, D-O-C-T-O-R-B-E-R-L-I-N. I got a whole lot of questions for you This kid's gonna test my will I got a lot to learn and my babies do <laughs> This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike Dr. Mom Butt Bomb as a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash.